Welcome to the Workflow Innovation Group's Brilliant or Bust podcast. Today's show is sponsored by Object Matrix, Vidispine, and Zixi. Welcome to the Workflow Innovation Group podcast, Wig Talks. I'm Christy King. And I'm Nick Pierce. And we are here with an episode, the latest episode of our podcast, which is all about the five dirty secrets of the media industry. Well, we found... We- we didn't quite get to five, did we? Let's be we, honest, Christy. We did not get to five. We actually made it to about two and then realized that every single one of these, quote, dirty secrets had about 15 <laughs> sublayers to them. Uh, and we needed to talk about them a lot. <laughs> and they're all changing. There's a massive amount of change going on. Yes. Regardless. So I, I think it's fair to say that this is part one of maybe two or three in terms of the Dirty Secrets, Stroke, Armageddon of broadcast podcasts. (laughs) It isn't as bad as it seems, but it is more about what are the things that we talk about privately with the industry, but not publicly acknowledge that we really should. Exactly. That's fair. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, we've got everything from the whole Nielsen situation finally sort of blowing up for real. We had NAB just got canceled because of COVID and, and, that led us into a whole deep conversation on recruiting people, let alone trying to rescue our uh, sales flows feet. What do you guys call that? What is that called? Pipeline. Pipeline. Thank yeah, you. Oh, pipeline. Good Lord. I go from the vendor side to the content creator you, side just, two months like, ago, and I've months. already forgotten what all two the words are. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so we're going to dive right in with part one of the dirty secrets of the media industry. We'll get to part two in a few weeks. Super, looking forward to it. All right, let's get started. What is your what is your big Armageddon dirty Reveal. secret, Steve? So I think, I think this industry can often act as its own worst break on innovation. And I will give you an example of that, which is that uh, many, 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 many years ago, people may remember, I was known for doing some workflowy stuff in, in this here industry of ours. Much break was applied by companies who, shall we say, um, made a bit of a living by um, recognizing that if you automated certain operations in, say, post-production, their job of um, going onto people's desktops um, on a daily basis and cleaning them up and moving stuff around, Um, would be redundant. So rather than kind of running with it and making sure that um, that they were kind of also heading to the future, uh, they tried to stop it. And I've seen quite a few instances of of, of things like that. So discuss. Um, well, I think that uh, you probably know what I'm thinking you you probably know what I'm talking about. I, well. I, I probably do, but I, I think that um, there was a classic example of that in France where plug-in for automating archives from Avid Interplay PAM, as it was then. And we sold our storage, but we couldn't sell the plug-in because it was someone's job to do the movement of content from Avid to an archive, and it was a union role. So so that's that's a really hard sort of baked-in example of a break being applied to that person possibly going off and doing a job that's way more interesting than archiving avid assets yeah and you know joking aside i genuinely do think it's um it it's it's actually been quite damaging to areas of the um of the industry because you know you look at you know we used to be you know elements have say that the you know the, the the prep and um and supply chain parts of the industry used to you know used to to get 
a really decent living by operating, you know, which manual workflows on um, on a relatively small sort of set, of, small set of assets. They never really got to the point investing in automation till the point it was too late. And we've seen a lot of supply houses actually disappear from the um, from the landscape because they yeah. just weren't ready to cope with the um, cope, cope with the change. Um, so I think you know it, it, it's it's had effects on people's lives. I think. I, I think that's going to tie into a, a, a later dirty secret as well around who's in the engineering rooms, their generation, yeah. what what, how far along in their career they are, how willing and they are to adapt to those new practices. Back to your example though that you gave of of the folks in France, did that plugin finally get allowed into their system? I mean, is it like a lot of other industries where things just get delayed? Or did it literally that product never get used? Well, we just we gave up in that instance. Um, it was it's not it wasn't worth fighting. I'm sure today it'll be fine, but it was just a real good example of innovation coming in to help some sort of operational efficiency that wasn't wanted. Yeah, it, it went in, but if, if anybody ever un un uninstalls the plugin, they have to pay it its salary for the next 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> but this yeah. is not uncommon, guys. We've seen this happen time and time again, where we are an industry of innovators and everybody wants to bake the cake uniquely in their own environment, but are not real open to change. So it's kind of ironic in the sense that we're pushing for change, but we are reluctant to change as a, as a group. It's just kind of, it's kind of been the industry I've experienced over the last 40 plus years of, you know, come in, I can give you a great workflow that's going to make you more efficient, but they want to do the show exactly the way they did it four years ago, because it's automatic. Yeah. I said, uh, it's funny. I remember, um, I remember reading a book about how independent television got started in the UK. And uh, it's, got, it's got a couple of um, couple of chapters where it's actually talking about the you know the technical environment and how they swap things around the network and and so on and um, and the scary thing is is you kind of you look at and that's you know, that's what what seventy odd more years ago that that joke about um, you, you move a you move a time traveler through um, through time and um, and they'd um, and they 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 wouldn't recognise the environment they were in mm. kind of would in um, <laughs> in certain TV stations um, yeah. I think you know your, your point actually about innovators then not being open to change. I think is it it, it always amazes me because because um, you think you know, we you think we'd be the kind of people who embrace change, want to go faster and faster. I think COVID's actually been really interesting. I think I've said this before, maybe on, on the previous previous one of these that um, it. it if there's one really kind of interesting thing to come out of the absolute disaster that the um, you know the last sixteen months or so has been is that um, all those people who said you can't do that, yeah, you can yeah, when you've can. absolutely got to. But you know historically, and it, you know when you're a small company like ours breaking in, you can start in through the post houses and the smaller companies, mm -hmm. and you might get a small department within a big beast taking you on. But when it comes to the critical path, the whole, mm. you know, you don't get fired for buying big, you know who. Um, yes. And unfortunately, you're buying that for the wrong reasons at the wrong cost, doing the wrong thing time and time again and, and, and crucifying innovation at the same time. And mm. yet there are people who will sit in their jobs for 20 years making the same poor decisions time and time again, but they're evaluated on the fact that nothing went wrong rather yep, yeah. than nothing was improved. Yep. Well, well and, and that change that brings the issue of, you're no longer an expert, right? And that's what everybody wants to be perceived as in this industry. I'm an expert. But as soon as you change that workflow, I'm not an expert anymore. I'm relearning a new process. Mm. 
Well, there's certainly job security, and you see that, right? And it's perceived as a threat to disruption. But back to what Nick was saying, start with that first thing of television. Television was in a very unbelievably unique static business model for almost 80 years. Mm -hmm. Not many industries can claim that. Right. And the people who ran the infrastructure of television were paid not to take risk because all of the money and all the pieces stemmed from that. So it's a balance between the rewards of innovation and the, the actual or perceived risks of innovation. And then under those perceived risks, is it that I'm not becoming an expert as Don says, which means I may not have a job, which is valid, uh, or my union may say, I can't do it that way, which right. has also happened many times and why you see a lot of exodus out of places like New York City uh, for certain functions. Then what are the benefits that I get for said innovation? And if the, if the entire big machine, as Nick referenced it, which is true, I mean, these, media, these big media companies are really large and they're very distributed in that part. Um, how am I measuring things? Like if I have a nice dashboard that shows me and I'm measuring uptime and that is my KPI, mm -hmm. I need an ROI and a TCO that come up with unicorn magic to explain to me why I want to risk my life or job of 20, 25 years. And by the way, it only takes one oops to ruin the hundred attaboys in television. And you also have the perception. People have done things a long way. Television was a dominant, sexy, cool thing to do, which is another thing we'll touch on down is how cool and sexy still will that remain? It's a big conundrum. And in, in, in my world of Zixi, we were trying to convince broadcast engineers and network engineers to come off satellite and to trust the internet and to do these things, which we know I've been doing this for 10 years perfectly. Yeah. Every day I still have that debate and I will have a discussion. There will be a network engineer who will have a perspective that there's nothing fiber won't fix, despite yep. the facts of speaking of lies that fiber is dirty. Fiber has problems. Fiber, fiber, if you have an outage and a down thing in the internet, it self heals. When the backhoe hits your fiber line, it's a week and a half. <laughs> so, so where is the risk? And that's why I say risks versus perceived risks. But that is a very, and I think it's part of the challenge always in our industry as to how do you actually break in and get that disruption and put that innovation in there. Um, and for whatever reason, we are stubborn enough to continue to do so. But that seems to be the thing that we're trying. I just happened to watch uh, the Apple's announcement, mm. speaking of things that are the same yet different. You know, here it's all virtual. So they treated their Apple new phone announcement, new product line announcement as a completely virtual event. So if you watch it, it looks like a movie. It's an hour long series of pieces of content that were obviously edited together, shot in separate places and edited together. So in its adaptation for COVID, it looks like traditional television. Then you watch the part about where they do the big announcement at the end about their new phones. And what's yeah. really fascinating con connected to what we're talking about here is they kept almost overemphasizing the point that that phone can replace a, a cinema camera in a lot of instances. And they went and got a traditional director and a traditional produce, oh, cinematographer, professional cinematographer and a professional film director and had them go shoot scenes, you know, classic sci-fi, Western, whatever scenes, it, all using the phone with their various new depths of field and how you can actually t shoot the footage and then pull it into your edit system 
and assign focus length later, not mm. on set, which I know it's an overused cliche, but that is a game changer for sure. If you can run around and just shoot whatever and then decide what your focus pull is in the edit bay, that's awesome, right? So I lit right up, but you could, I could absolutely in my head hear a whole lot of people whose job it is to <laughs> play with focal lengths shooting in Hollywood and New York. If that can get done in the edit bay later, all of those, do those guys all lose their jobs? Yeah. Well, I've done screen tests, Kathy, in years past with comparing different cameras and different imager sizes mm -hmm. and not all 4K is created equal. Mm -hmm. So I'll leave it at that. But I think it's an interesting point that, and I think there's a target market for that solution, but I think most of Hollywood is going to be very reticent to run into, we're going to oh, be an iPhone, iCamera, but, but there they are. They're pushing it as a solution. But the point they were trying to make is coming from the cinematographer, this tool gives you a way to capture footage you cannot do with the traditional tools, mm. which means you can choose to see it as another tool to achieve storytelling versus this is going to take my job away. Right? Mm. Like those are two yeah. that it's more that mentality. Do you see all these innovations and changings coming as a, as Nick said, an opportunity to do a more interesting job instead of the one you've been doing? Or do you always see it as a challenge to employment? Oh, I, look, I think on this topic, and we, you, we could go the whole hour on it, but for sure, um, any, any change in an environment is always challenging for people. Yeah. Uh, we all feel a little bit of angst when it comes. Um, I, but I think sometimes we have to look hard at what we're doing at the moment because a lot of this, there's very little redundancy knocking around in broadcast and post at the moment in terms of whether they're using on-prem cloud or not. So I think that it, it's just one of those things where I think that change has come in, it's driven by the end user, ultimately it has so far. The, um, the last yeah. 18 months has driven that even further. So for me, if we were gonna do a uh, brilliant or bust on this, it would be a, a brilliant secret that not many people go on about and bust in terms of the way that we behave in general to sort of hold on to stuff. Somebody, on, somebody once told me that if, if you don't have at least two copies of something, you don't have it. <laughs> I, I couldn't imagine who that who that I wish, I wish that guy was here now. Yeah, me well, too. But to that end, that kind of leads to our next subject, which is we were, you know, the next dirty secret, which is that we seem to continue to lose younger people from this industry to the Googles and Amazons and the, you know, the non-traditional content creator slash workflow people. Is it true that we're losing those folks to the Googles and the Amazons and the whatever because there is less fear of change there and in fact a motivated effort to constantly change things in those companies where whereas more traditional vendors and content creators kind of want to do things the way they've always done them because that's comfortable? Is that why all the engineers <laughs> stay uh, I, in broadcast? Uh, I, uh, I, I can mean, definitely attest to the fact that we're losing a lot of people to the, to the new studios that are popping up and they seem to be almost trying to collect as much talent as possible. They're almost trying to corner the market on talent. I just had a large studio executive yesterday I was talking to say that announced on our call that she's going to be leaving her current place of employment, which is a big studio and going over to head up a new division for Amazon. Yeah, so it's, it's happening. It's inevitable. And I think this came from 
you know, from my travels and certainly the comments that Steve and Eric have made right now in that technology hasn't changed hugely in the big broadcasters and it's only mm -hmm. in the last X years it has. But there's still a lot of legacy stuff there and that's been run by a bunch of pretty old peeps in terms of the demographic, right? The, the gray hairs, the gray beards, <laughs> not looking at you, Shaman, at all. <laughs> um, and ultimately, there's not a very long tail on that. And then you go out to the market and you try and find people to replace, bring in, educate them on old technology, which isn't exciting or sexy at all. And then you don't maybe have the spending power or the benefits to be able to attract the people who are going to the big cloud players or the big, um, you know, the Netflixes, et cetera, mm -hmm. where it is, bit, it is a bit more perceivably exciting. There is a bit more of a day, the thought that it's more of a startup environment, although it's anything but. So, yeah, I think it's a, a real time bomb in terms of talent that's, that's going to be retiring in effect. And I've seen a few go already in the last uh, three weeks in the customer base we have. And mm -hmm. then you've got the people who've jumped chip to the, the cloud players or the, or the Netflix or the, or the rest of them. So, we're not sexy as um, as an industry as we once were. I mean, it, it, one of you know one of the great things about moving into to media when you know when I did it was that at last the people that you know, your mates had a clue what you did. Whereas um, you know, sort of working in the IT industry, nobody even wanted to hear what you were doing because because um, it's it, it's it's IT stuff, right? Whereas people people kind of understood television and, um, and so you could talk about it and then actually be interested in, in what you're doing. I think it's also not a new problem. I remember, you know, years ago working on the Media City and, and uh, it, seems a, it seems to funny to think that that was 10 years ago now. One of the things that, um, that the broadcasters moving in were starting to talk to the university about there was they actually needed more people to, um, to, to come in on the sort of traditional signal side. And because the whole studio still, you know, the whole complex still ran on it. Um, but, um, but, but the people that, um, that were working on it were heading for retirement age. So it's a continuous problem. And I think there's, there's another factor as well, which is that it's, it's easy to it's easier to attract talent when you're um, when you are relatively unconstrained by the amounts that you can pay them, and um, yeah, and this is a this is a big issue. I remember you know working for a um, you know working for a broadcaster based out in um, in, in West London, and um, yeah, and, and we were you know, using you know we we used um, Python as kind of core language for some of the online stuff. Why would you come and work for us? when you could kind of go to the other side of London and pay, be paid literally three times as much in the financial services market, wrangling bits of, um, wrangling bits of data. We're in a, we are in a competition um, for talent. And, um, and, and for, I think for lots of reasons, we're kind of losing I, it. I think maybe, I don't know, Eric, Eric what your view is this, but maybe in the past, broadcast engineering was a vocation, whereas it's far from that now. It's... Uh... Yeah, it's completely not, agree it's with that. This is super topical. It's uh, again, um, we could do this is an hour long podcast in itself, but <laughs> because it well because it's actually at the core of a lot of things. I mean, the whole television industry is being influenced by demographic and generational shift mm. as a consumption, and that is completely playing out in the actual running, making, and being the industry of television. So, a couple of things I I have literally been working through a number of migrations in the last two weeks in major media companies who their top engineers and let's be clear the millennial generation are looking at this and saying the idea of being a lifer 
first, the idea of being getting to be a lifer is become is a fallacy, but that's a separate trail on itself. But when I watch through resumes, you know, a two to three year stint is considered long tours of duty in the current generation. And the next levels of challenge are considered. And to recruit and retain talent as a big media company, you have to say, am I a content company or am I a technology company? And even the major networks with all their revenue, they don't have the heft to be the technology company of an Amazon and a Google. And Amazon is a major client of ours on a number of fronts is seemingly hiring just about everybody and the other getting there, but it's because of the challenges and the opportunities presented. And some of this is absolute. There is money like we see and, and like we have a big engineering team in Tel Aviv and the competition for top engineering talent there is fierce. And you do see distortions in the market of 3x and 4x in salaries and you say okay whatever um i mean i saw some frenzy for an aiml engineer in china a few years ago and it was in seven figures which is very interesting just to think about the thing that's driving the moves and migrations are actually career paths are be under threat so as you get the disruption and within the industry your traditional career path and in your time of change have radically moved and they've accelerated the pace of change is accelerated but the opportunity to migrate may not have and where before you were 20 years 30 years and particularly we're mentioning that tv is still in its dna and antiquated and very old school culture um, many of that lives at the top and expects you to pay dues and do things and get there this generation doesn't actually, that doesn't mean anything to them. It's not currency. You can't win them because television's sexy. Uh, what is sexy is working on brand new innovative things. And that is the next part. And they will be rewarded. Or is it just a pure dollar play? Are they just going after the biggest paycheck? I think it's no, 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 I, I honestly, I they got more money. I'm watching the moves. It's, it's career path is seemingly the bigger thing because what, what, in my opinion, what the, the media companies need to do is become much better orchestrators of technology, but many of them, because they have engineers, want to be building it. And when you have to, when a lot of your revenue model is based on legacy systems, you're going to require people to do that. And the old guys are going to say, yeah, I should point at somebody to go do that. And then the young generation's like, why would I ever want to do that? And they don't have the actual ability to pay for that. And if I do look at what the bigger techs are paying, like Amazon, it's not as cash as is obviously the stock component yes. is a big draw. So that's, yeah. that is a different X factor within that. Um, but it's literally people saying, if I do go work at an Amazon or a Google for four or five years, I have that and I am now stamping. And they are going, a, a great career before might be two, three jobs over 30 years and you're a very stable executive, but you've innovated enough and you've had some experience. A single lifer, a little more suspect. But today, you may have 10 jobs over a 20-year career. Yeah. And that's not going to put that sideways. There's probably, probably something else, with, again, which I think is uh, which I think is actually very, it, it, it is a general problem, but it is very, there is a very specific relief to it um, in the industry, which is, is kind of, as I look at the screen demographically, got four middle-aged white guys. Yeah, talking about um, talking about stuff, and I think you know to to you know to 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 think about um, you know 
lots of things that um, one of my best old bosses um, has, has, has talked a lot about is that you know part of the reason that um, that, that we've got a dearth of talent is that um, we're actually not a particularly attractive industry for half the population. Yeah, it's it's quite intimidating. In fact, it's an intimidating industry to come into. In, not once you meet people, but if you look yeah. at it, on, if you look at if you look at the pictures of a panel, you'll be like, Ooh. <laughs> there's a lot of. Uh, I was yeah. going to say, when you said it wasn't an attractive dot, dot, dot industry. Okay, that was good. That was helpful. <laughs> I didn't know where you're going um, with that, Steve. But, draw, your, draw your own conclusion there, Ashley. No, I understand. It, well, lumped, it's, lumped in with we, you middle-aged boys. That's what's up, Tom. We all grew up around television and it as a culture. It was our, it was our universal touchstone. It literally <laughs> raised me as a child. Like, you know, that was latchkey, stare at the kid before Kramer versus Kramer. That's what you're watching. It was television. And everyone on a Friday would talk about what was on Thursday night. And that was a universal thing. In the United States, there would be a Johnny Carson moment every night that you'd go to bed under. Nobody today knows what that means or it even feels that way. Um, You know, sports leagues are struggling to make 15-year-olds focus at a point in time. And you're going to watch all that morph. Meanwhile, you have to create more content, more elegantly in much more complex environments. So is that, I mean, this is kind of a separate philosophical question for the media companies. Should you be investing in technology that you control or should you be leveraging technology that exists? And there's always been a belief in traditional broadcasts, you want to own your stuff. But if that stuff is run by a company like Amazon, why wouldn't you let the trillion two trillion dollar company develop your infrastructure are you in the infrastructure business or the content business let's, and then let's, what is let's, the best let, let's not go down that rabbit hole because we will literally be here for two hours but yeah yeah but but it also but right, leads Eric. to kind of what is the third arm of this you know i said well are they jumping ship because of purely for the dollars or as eric said it's are they really after a particular career path i will say i had it there's a third piece to that which is how are they measuring success versus how are we measuring success which brings us down to the data rabbit hole now you can say what you were going to say eric i was just going to say i do even have there is like in startups and pieces that that money does get bought out so that kind of also eats away to innovation like if you're in a small startup and you become good enough and kids get skills all of a sudden an amazon comes in and it does offer double the salary yes migrate them in a second but when i see the guys that would be doing the innovation on the media part the salaries are a little close you're not talking about really large larger differences it might so but what it becomes is where will I be in five years, in 10 years? And what, what, what it, like if, if you are a 35 year old person right now, where does 10, 10 years from now is looking much longer? In 1980 and 90, I could look forward 10 years with a level of surety. Right. But from to 21, 2021 today, especially what we've just seen in the pandemic and various things with climate and whatnot, what is my surety level going forward in 10 years? And then the next answer is, I'm just going to move. Also, the whole 08 and everything else has, from the financial crisis earlier, the, the corporations are not going to, the chances of you keeping your job on multi-decade to finish are unbelievably statistically low, like yeah. basically zero. So if that's the case, what's the incentive? And actually, you will be rewarded for moving because yeah. you'll actually learn something. Yeah, we were just rewarded for showing you have that, that bit of gumption for going and doing something rather than sitting. Yeah, completely agree. 
Yeah. So it, you know, the, the, I think that really does lead us to the, the data conversation uh, as, as another dirty, dirty secret of the industry in that, you know, Nielsen obviously has blown up the top secret conversation we've all had for years saying that, um, household measurement and that sort of thing in Nielsen really was kind of meaningless. If your buyer understands how Google's data works and, and how you can buy things so efficiently in social media, if you have a buyer that understands those things, it's actually harder to get them to understand the broadcast model than because they're coming from a place of real data, not baloney data. So now this Nielsen thing has exploded and those kinds of conversations are very public. For those of you that are servicing the media industry, this has got to be really interesting to, to watch people publicly address how do we measure success in content? What is the gold standard going to be if it's not Nielsen? Is it Google or is it some other thing? And then you throw in ASCII three, and everyone runs screaming out of the room. So, so net, a few you know, a few years ago, there's sort of um, you know, Netflix would tell you nothing about um, about the consumption of, uh, but you know, that they have everything you know, that they can tell to the frame what you've been doing. Um, but but it was not in that, and they were using that to drive their own behaviors, investments, and why wouldn't they? And they weren't sharing it with the rest of the, the world because because frankly, it's um, it's none of our business. It's their um, idea. It's yeah, their private exactly. user agreement with us that are members. It's their yeah. yeah, and it's and I think the more we have those, co- I mean, it, it's funny, isn't it? We're, we're we're back into we're back into the wall gardens. It's everybody wants you in their wall garden because then they can control you as a data point, and then they can um, and they can monetize you to the maximum effect. Um, so you, you, I don't know, maybe so maybe things like um, Nielsen just drop away because actually it becomes irrelevant or yeah who knows because there just isn't enough public stuff out in the world to to, to justify actually measuring it uh, well i think it's <clears throat> let's let's back this up a little so <laughs> ratings um the the thing and yes you can add a com score in parts but um america it's interesting that you think of a print ad and it feels quaint today to believe that I am going to take an ad and put it in a newspaper or a magazine, and then I'm going to base that ad on per, per sub, the amount of subscriptions and how many people and this idea of CPM and impressions per thousand. And the Nielsen Ratings is an extension of that. I'm going to say this many people estimated would have watched that broadcast. But with cord cutting and pieces, those numbers, you know, that's becoming harder to substantiate. But it underpins a $250 billion global industry, $75 billion in North America. These are large and sophisticated corporations. You now have different tools. You said Netflix as a subscription model is not incentivized to share ratings because it's if its ratings are high, that means it's doing a great job inside its wall garden. Yeah. But as I need to take, that costs money, it costs things. And now with, yes, I got rid of my cable bill, but I now have 17 streaming services I have to subscribe to. That's a separate economic challenge and a pain in the neck when I got to go figure out what I want to watch. But if I start going into many of the ad-driven services, which are free, but you deal with that, you are now going to change a very long-standing 80-year-old model, but migrate with a capability that you can target the programming, <clears throat> target the ads, <clears throat> excuse me, and get a much higher 
per person per subscriber rate, because in theory, you should be able to do it. I have one of our partners who is doing live streaming to airplanes. And when they do that, that's generally just sort of there, but consider it who knows more about a consumer than an airlines. And if I can target or know which program you've watched and that you're sitting in first class, I can get a pretty high premium on an ad if I can get it to you. So this virtualized infrastructure and this ability to now pivot, be agile and morph in your business model, that's the big deal. And it's an existential thing because time is ticking. So they have to move and get that at a certain rate of adoption and move. I think we, the tools of the industry exist, but we go, what we said earlier, people that don't want to take risks, there's things on that part, there's a lot of different stuff. So where are we in that? I, like, think about it. You, we're used to Spotifying a consumer experience. That implies that the computers know very much what we want. <clears throat> then the question is, can we, the industry, get that to them? So in my world, I am envisioning that an intelligent backend that is supporting the front end. So when you're watching the given sporting event and it's about to end, doesn't want to lose you or lose the household, it knows it'll give me sub options of here's comedy, here's action, here's sci-fi. It will give my household different pieces to look at because you can't just flatten. You don't need to just jump the gap on the revenue. You've got to grow the revenue. These are public companies. This is a this is a growth business, not a kind of catch the falling knife business. So is it a big problem? Absolutely. Will it be a huge driver to change? Yes. Eric, are there any sort of numbers that tell us if people are watching stuff, you know, all the subscription services through the TV or more on their more on devices like laptops and stuff, is it still predominantly on the box and the wall? It's moving. And, it, and one of the big pushes is um, look at Samsung TV. We do direct distribution to that for, you know, a client like the Bloomberg, and they were one big innovators on that. And as the, the TV becomes the device, then the data in the player starts tracking it there. Amazon just announced last week, I think it's Omni, that they are launching, surprisingly, intelligent TVs. You used to need to have a box attached to a cable to tell you what was going on. Or you called, Nielsen was literally old days, people would watch on air television, you'd call the family and you'd ask them the question. Roku's, the Fire Sticks, the Apple TV devices, all of these will be data pieces. The television itself is now gonna become very intelligent. The car of the future, all autonomous vehicles will be yeah, I, I guess where I was leading to it, because there are certain things that we all have in our homes that capture this data. And yeah. whilst you may have 17 different subscription services, it's all going through the same router, right? So nope. BT, in fact, probably knows, well, it's going through. I have, okay, there's very, little, there's very little going through my phone in this house because of our well, signal. It's, it's, all, it's, it's all going through our broadband router. And our broadband router is collecting IP addresses, it's collecting bandwidth in and out. It knows where those IP addresses are going to. That's what those devices are. So there's an absolute crap load of data that the comms companies are sitting on that's probably far yeah. more accurate than anyone out there. And I think that, yeah, Netflix may not want to share it, but I guarantee BT knows the IP range of Netflix and knows exactly how much data is going in. It, not, it won't know the granularity of the stuff we're watching, but it'll certainly have a good view on viewing habits of the British public based on what's going in and out of those routers rather than yeah. a more complex thing. I don't know. Do, do you remember a few, do you remember, it, it, it's a few years ago now, but precisely that, there was a, it was a company called Form. I forget what the hell it was called uh, before it was called Form. It had to change, it had to kind of take the, the cell field option um, because it became so toxic. But essentially what they were doing was, um, was the ISP, they were selling a capability to the ISPs to actually inject ads into the streams. 
um, and people were so angry with the idea that their ISPs were actually spying on the traffic. I mean, hell, they, they know where the traffic's going because they've got all the interconnect agreements in place. If you think your ISP scare is, um, is spying on you, that's completely unacceptable. The fact that Facebook is spying on you every minute of the day, uh, well, you're doing, you, that's, that's allowed because you, you get well, to see funny memes. You know, it's, it's people's, I think it's a mindset change as well that's going to have to happen. there's also, if I'm, if I'm a media buyer and I'm, buy, if I used to buy commercials on Friends when it aired on NBC, and now today, Netflix actually has the rights to it unless... NBC is playing something. Anyway, this is where it gets back to Nielsen. If you, is the ISP selling the commercial and doing the insert? Is NBC selling the commercial and doing the insert? Is is um, some version of Nielsen tracking this and auditing to make sure that the person that was promised, the eyeballs that were promised are the eyeballs that actually saw it? when Netflix, NBC, and your ISP all are walled gardens, as Eric called them, not only do you not know who gets to make the money, but who's then the quote-unquote third-party auditor. <laughs> and by the way, where in this mess did the individual give permission to which company where to actually track their behavior? Check, check your terms of uh, service. It's, service. A little, it's a little link. I've been waiting for that phrase to come up. Look at your TOS and explain yeah. that to Yeah. And, and then do that for policy. every service you have. Yeah. And then when six months are over, come and have a chat with us. Well, that, by the way, when six months are over, they'll all be different. Yeah. <laughs> it's that little paragraph on page 86. <laughs> I looked right. at one and one of them, I have a phone and it's an Android. I will pick on the manufacturer because they're also a client. And, uh, but when I did look just for fun <clears throat> to see what their manufacturer's app to do some TV things was, and I did just read the terms of service, it includes incredible amounts of control of your camera, your audio, your, all your day, everything. And yeah. you're literally signing that off. Yep. So, and it to Christie's point, which is kind of interesting, who's selling what? Well, everyone's selling everything, but what do you do in the now, not so distant future where you were watching something on your smart TV and then you want to kind of take it with, you got to go. And so you hand it off to the kids in the back seat. So now it's in a car. And then of course we get to grandma's house and you follow it all the way to the iPad. Where's that revenue share algorithm? Right. Mm -hmm. Complex. Yes. And and what's the customer service number you call when you have a problem? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I gave them yours, Christy. So. <laughs> yeah, <I mean. laughs> well, yeah, because this actually oddly came up for me this morning because, of course, as you guys know, I moved to a company where I'm I've left the vendor side and I'm back on the buyer side and I'm working on a website for these guys and we have to put in some way for people to contact us if they have a problem during a live event we're streaming. Okay, well, we're on Netflix. We're, or sorry, not Netflix. We're in Apple TV devices, Google devices, all of the devices, plus your phones, plus your televisions, all the different versions of television. And <laughs> you can buy your subscription on Apple or Google or from us directly. And each one of those purchase paths has a data trail, as we've been talking about here, but it also has a potential technology path. You may be having trouble buying something 
I did this my very own self. I bought myself a brand new LG TV and OLED. I was very proud, my first adult television. <laughs> and I tried to watch our content through the app on the television directly using WebOS and had also bought it through my Apple TV device and also bought it through the Roku device, all on the same TV. Two of the three of them worked. One did not. As a consumer, who am I yelling at to fix the one that doesn't work? Right. So like... you're backing into, now we're back to talking about the content creator. That's who I work for, the content creator. To, to answer that and question. And I have to figure out who do I yell at to help the consumer who's yelling at me. <laughs> so so, so like... to answer that question for your, for, for your customers, it's Christy.King. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing we have to discuss on this one really quickly is NAB being cancelled. How, yes. how shocked are we all? Um, and uh, do we believe IBC will go ahead, round, go around the tables, and should it go ahead? I'm going to start with Eric. Go. Look at my shocked face. <laughs> uh no it was you know it's I great was, content for a podcast and yeah yeah exactly. well it, you know great face for radio but the important part was we we were all hopeful and you want to you want to believe it's true but it was literally it's it's just too much how do you put 50 60 000 people together do you bring them into a room it's just too many things there's and even then who is going to be allowed to go yeah, so yeah. Part of the point of this trade show is to go meet a client. So if the client can't come, then that's going to be an interesting thing. As for IBC, I think everybody, again, the trades themselves are trying to stick around and find a way to gut this out, uh, cash flow and otherwise. But I, as a betting person, I have a hard time seeing how that pulls off, but we'll see. Uh, it could be, it, it may live as a much smaller, very, very regional event. Well, on that, just on that point, I think that this year and next year, I think the more regional events are going to really benefit. So Satis yeah. in France would be bigger than it's ever been. MPS in the UK, great show before the pandemic, just a small growing community-based show that people go to to network. Uh, they'll probably see more stuff like HPA in the US will probably grow. Um, but yeah, so I'll just put my money on IBC not happening. Um, yeah. And it'll be 2022 going on again. That's my view. Don? Oh, sorry, Steve. I was a lot along the lines of Eric. I was hopefully optimistic things would happen. For us, it's a big show that drives sales pipeline, um, but not surprised. Not surprised because I was doing a little bit of tallying with our with our uh, ch channel partners, and they were talking to customers, and a lot of people were saying they weren't going. Yeah, so it was to Eric's point. I think it was going to end up being a a manufacturer show, which doesn't do much for us folks selling. No, it doesn't. Yeah. No, it's um, not surprised at all. Um, shouldn't have gone ahead, probably shouldn't have gone ahead in the first place um i don't think ibc will happen neither should it no. um it's uh, and we're, we're still in the middle of a global pandemic this thing is not going away and um and i think i think you you i can't remember who said it but the whole point about um about sending people um yeah we as we as individuals you know as, as vendors as consultants whatever it happens to be we can make a decision about going um, and so I would not feel comfortable about sending my people to something because we don't know how safe it is. Um, you know, because because let's face it, we could be sitting in, in February talking about the IBC variant. Um, yeah. Well, and, and more importantly, just to pick that up, Steve, and put it, it, it's the real issue here is about safety and liability. 
Yeah, and exactly. if you're a major media executive. I don't think they're going to let you go hang out <laughs> with 60,000 people who want to sell you something. If you're an employer of people, you have to think about that. And the right. next secret we can kick down the road is uh, about the COVID lawsuits that are happening because people couldn't meet or meet. And like, what was the protocol? I mean, we, right. we, we yeah. are, you have a responsibility to your employees. You have a responsibility through your employees to your customer. Yeah. And in the realm where contact is a risk, that's a thing. I guess the, the, the danger there, though, and, um, um, you know, do you have to wait for it to not be a pandemic before we start doing it again? Because that could take a while, right? I mean, that could be years and years. Right? Yeah. I, I, a, you know right? what? I, to a certain extent, maybe we do. Um, but, um, but you know, a, a year from now, things might be different. But I'll, I'll take fly now. I think AWS will, will have to cancel reInvent. There you go. Oh, didn't even think of that. I'll throw that one in there. Yep. That's it. And that's that actually is uh, a major rival to an NABIBC. Yeah, it is now. In our world, not that it's not globally. Oh, indeed, yeah, yeah, yeah. Christy, what do you think? It is. Yeah, I was, I, I admit it, I was surprised. I thought they had committed and they were going to just sort of make people get uh, their shots and make people get tested every day if they didn't get the shot, you know, really just lean into that whole being the police of the medical situation and I'm kind of glad that they chose not to go there because what happens, at least what I've observed just around town is you turn all the waiters and waitresses and bartenders into policemen and babysitters of people that are not wearing masks or wearing masks or getting tested or not getting tested and shots and on and on and on. And I, I have a feeling that it is, I'll bet you, a really big battle to think through what are we asking of our employees if we can if we either ask them to go or not go or as employers of NAB and the convention centers what are we asking our employees of those entities to do and take on i mean I, you guys have read all the same stories i have about how incredibly rude and inappropriate people have behaved personally going to a lot of uh, uh, retail spaces yeah. and you imagine then that in a, in a, let's call it a professional setting where everybody's going to NAB because it's work. Well, yeah. then what happens if somebody doesn't follow the rules and you spend all this money and blah, blah, blah. So I, I guess the answer to your question is I was surprised that they committed so long and then at the bitter end backed out. But on the other hand, I don't know that there's a right answer. I, I don't, I don't begrudge them taking so long to make that decision because it's just bizarre. <laughs> no, at some point you have to put a line in the sand so that people can do their own planning. And especially, you know, a lot. The dirty secret on this one is that a lot of people and vendors who are going to NAB until this week or are going to IBCs because they have money invested in it already that they cannot get back. And then if that means that you can't get your money back, then things are bad enough out there at the moment anyway for some businesses that they should be able to focus on what they can do in the next three months, not wonder if they're going to be doing something in December. Yeah. They should put all their energies into doing something positive rather than thinking, is something going to go ahead? Shall we plan for it and waste cycles and resource and money planning for something that potentially realistically isn't going to go ahead. So I don't think it's fair of the show organizers to leave it so late because it takes all our time and resource planning and being in limbo when we could be doing something far more productive and positive for our businesses in that period of time. Yeah. 
We agree. And I, we know how long they held at IBC and, and we, we even sent people out to try to figure out. I mean, we definitely made a lot of pre-investment in NAB, but it raises the question. We know why we, they're holding us. And we know the money. How many trade shows can you go without and still be a there, trade? Therein and, lies the question, right? Before they're a, no longer a, a working business. Yeah. I think I said that. That's a very, very interesting question. Yeah. So on that note, part one of the super cheerful, dirty secret laundry list. <laughs> so you guys Thanks, can all guys. drop off. Cheers, Thank bye. you very much. Bye. Thanks. Today's Wig Talks Brilliant or Bust podcast was sponsored by Vidispine, cloud-based media workflow solutions to maximize your media potential. Zixi, the global leader in broadcast quality live video over IP. Object Matrix the cloud storage people who provide platforms that enable creative and production teams with self-serve access to media content on-premise or remotely from anywhere. Today's contributors were Hawthorne Innovation, helping bring the power of modern artificial intelligence and the cloud to bear on story production, content supply chains, and media systems integration. And Christy King, LLC, a media technology consultancy content creator.